0: Hey, welcome to another episode of that naturopathic podcast. Doctor David Miller here, and D. Michelle Pobega, and D. What's up? Hey,
1: uh, I'm excited today. We have a fun we have a fun guest. She's got fantastic energy, and um, we're going to start talking about trauma today and how we can start to identify how trauma can manifest in the physical body as well as in the mental emotional body, and then maybe why people struggle with certain repeating patterns or don't heal the way they expect to that's kind of why i invited cassandra to come on because that's something i've seen in clinical practice dave what about you
0: no i, I like you you went right to you went right to what we're talking about. i know today. you you like it's you crazy. don't like it
1: when i like when i just delay you like, I you like when it. It's, get fun. Right in there.
0: it's fun it's fun i you know you're fun I am but, fun. Uh, but I like I like when we uh, we get right to it, so that people who are just skipping through and go, "What are they going to talk about today?" We have a a great talk today. Yes, with Cassandra Hope. You
2: are you are fun. You are really fun. <laughs> thank 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 you, <laughs> right? <laughs> so so yeah.
1: Yeah. So so Cassandra Hope is a functional trauma recovery coach. So she incorporates objective data such as blood work and functional labs, paired with her deep respect and acknowledgement of a client's emotional body to help create comprehensive strategies that yield balance back in the body. So she coaches on movement, nutrition, nutraceuticals, and self-regulation practices to support her clients in their recovery from intense stress and trauma. Welcome to the show uh the fantastic and the force that is Cassandra Hope so welcome
2: thank you I'm so stoked to be here I feel really honored
1: yeah it's we love that you're here all this. can you. I ask you how did you kind of come into this zone because I met you through like different periods of our lives together and when I mm. first met you you were super like fitness coach and you were doing competitions and Get a totally different vibe to you and I've seen how you've shifted throughout the years. And I kind of want to understand what brought you to this specific area, um, of supporting clients and supporting people. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's such a beautiful thing to reflect on when I do think about what led me to here, because it's equally, uh, equally rooted in pain and curiosity. <sighs> um, But like most, I've been in fitness since, you know, my first job was 16 years old in a gym and working at GNC. And I just always was drawn to, you know, supplements and nutrition and workouts. And I think in hindsight, what led me to competing and becoming a personal trainer and really focusing on how the body looks was very much rooted in feeling like an imposter, right? Like high level. Um, My mom left when I was 12. She's still alive today. I have no idea where she is. She's incredibly mentally ill and severely addicted to alcohol. And when a child loses their parent at such an important young age, um, there's this default pattern that starts to develop in the brain that is so subconscious. You know, I wasn't aware of it but it's that I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy and I'm not lovable. And in order for me to secure connection, I need to be beautiful and fit. So I got the big old breast implants put in and started restrictive dieting and overtraining and thinking I am going to be a powerhouse. I'm going to run a huge business and be this international fitness star. Again, very much in line with Um, symptoms of trauma, Mm. you know, this daydreaming and this glorifying of who I can be and what I can be. And, but I do have a genuine desire to help people be healthy. So as I was coaching people, one thing that I noticed is it's not about the food and it's not about the workouts. You know, I could lead the horse to water, but when people were really hitting resistance, I didn't know how to help them and I didn't know what that resistance was mm. and I wanted to learn. So I started, I became a holistic nutritionist, went to CSNN, then I became um, an NLP coach. I started really starting to understand the brain, wanting to understand the brain and why are these patterns happening? And I, I knew I wasn't getting to the core of it though, because as much as I could have these conversations about reframes and teaching people about the subconscious mind and how it drives 90% of our behavior and you know these patterns are developed because of experiences that lead us to either needing to protect ourselves or avoid future pain and how can we create more safety in the body it still didn't help me to actually get people like they were like ah but it wasn't necessarily translating into behavioral changes right so um i ended up uh i guess it was after a few really tough breakups and i think you know the pain of experiencing such a deep loss when i was in love with somebody mirrored the pain of losing my mom and it really started to unravel my nervous system i didn't know what was happening so i was losing control with i became orthorexic and i became Um, My my hormones started, everything just started unraveling. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't really focus. My brain patterns were, um, I started becoming really scared of what was happening. And it led me to start to study. um, there, There was this summer after a bad breakup where the anxiety was so intense. I thought, oh my God, I'm bipolar. I'm having a manic episode. I can't come down. What is happening. And I spoke to um, my old mentor and business partner, Dr. Robin Murphy. And she said, it sounds like autonomic dysregulation. It sounds like your nervous system can't actually come down after stress. And I was like, but why, why would that happen? So I started researching autonomic dysregulation and it, everything started to funnel to studying the amygdala and the limbic system right? So this is where we're current day, basically-ish, the last like five, six years of my research has been understanding how based on primitive patterns, evolution, it's a built-in life-saving mechanism. Our brain is like, hi, as soon as deep pain or deep loss, being ostracized, being shamed, being abused, any of these things that people experience from childhood all the way, like compounding experiences, right? This is so common. The brain is going, ah, another reason to be hypervigilant. Ah, another reason to stay in sympathetic overdrive. Another reason to keep bathing the body in these stress-based neurochemicals. And it wants to do it. It's like, I'm going to save your life. And this is happening subconsciously. We have no idea why we're chronically inflamed. Our adrenals are burnt out. We're not digesting our food properly. We're presenting with autoimmune-like diseases, or we develop autoimmune disease, and it's like, whoa! I am in a street fight. What the fuck is happening, right? And this is why I've really shifted away from. I was really big into okay, we're going to put you on this protocol, this medical diet, this type of um, nutraceutical protocol. We're going to, you know, rebalance your microbiome. We're going to nourish your adrenals. Blah blah blah. But I was like, if I can start to teach the art of teaching people how to recognize the signs of limbic system impairment or limbic system activation, the fire alarm part of the brain, and help them to understand when I think like this, when I speak like this, when I behave like this, these are actual black and white symptoms that I am activating the pro-inflammatory part of my nervous system. And with that knowledge, I then st- I can then start to you know thinking of in the, the mindset of the patient or the client. I can then start to incorporate these self-regulating techniques to hijack my brain, which is the power that the brain has, I am so fascinated by how strong it is to keep us in these unconscious patterns. So I teach people, you literally are in, are in a straight, street fight. you are taking all of this energy, to go against the brain's natural inclination to want to save your life and actually teach it how to calm down. Mm. It doesn't surrender to that easily. But the thing that I've noticed that has been the most profound shift is to actually reparent ourselves. So instead of going, ah, I recognize the symptom and I'm going to start breathing, or I'm going to start stretching, or I'm going to shake, let's say, which is a lot of the somatic practices. What has been so incredibly profound at helping to heal the body is to step in and narrate the problem as the parent you wish you had in the moment, Hmm. the tone of voice, the softness, the compassion, the not making you wrong, not making you broken for being back in that pattern. Right? What do we always want from our parents? Unconditional love and empathy. And the nervous system is hardwired to let go of that need to be hypervigilant and self-protective. When we can step in, it doesn't know the difference between whether it's us, whether it's a therapist, or whether it's our own mother. It is going to respond positively to that unconditional love, that self-soothing, that compassion and empathy. And then you can get into the physical practices. Okay. I'm going to breathe. I'm going to expand. I'm going to X, Y, Z. So I've shifted a lot away, a a huge amount away from medical diets and nutraceuticals. And I really teach a lot about how the nervous system behaves and what it responds well to.
1: Awesome. Yeah. That's so awesome. Right, Dave? That's why I asked her to come on.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm just listening. Going, This is awesome. Yeah.
1: I feel like it's so funny cuz I I I encounter this in clinical practice like you I don't have the skill set I mean to yeah same to, to even properly guide somebody to water in the same sense that maybe a therapist a somatic therapist an intuitive counselor or whatever in that sphere can do that and I and I'm still limited to the nutraceuticals, the dietary practices yeah. or lifestyle changes and stuff. But then when I have someone came in, coming in they're like, I couldn't do it this month and I didn't do it. And I could only do this. And then they're like, I don't, I don't want to do that. Or it's like, there's, it's like they don't, it's almost like they don't want to get better. And then I start to see mm. the trauma response where it's like, it's safer for you to stay where you are than to try to change. Cause change sets off the yeah. fire alarm, right. Or anything yeah. that's changed. So and that's where I have to refer out. And I, and, and I hope yeah. that my clients will take that and bite at it. Cause it's not, it's not easy work to start to face your shadow self, but I feel like that's where the true healing lies Yeah. because otherwise, you know, I can give people all the best advice, but if they don't, if they can't get out of their own way and apply it, then it's really just like, what's it, it doesn't do much. Yep. Yeah. So.
0: Yeah, does, does, does the, you yeah. Yeah. Does, does this sh- is okay. So Michelle brought up shadow, you didn't bring it up, but I think it's really neat. Oh, no, I think it's a really uh interesting kind of conversation is shadow related to this trauma in any way. And, and um you know, if, if not, you can just tell me, but if it, if it is related, then I'd love to know how it expresses itself in a way that, because shadow is, it's hard for you to see yourself. Right. I mean, I, I have it in myself and, Other people often can see your shadow easier. Like, is there a bit of shadow whispering that you're doing at all? Or is it, am I completely off with the shadow being related to the trauma?
2: It's totally related. And I think it just depends on the type of words somebody wants to use to describe how the patient is presenting. Um, We'll develop these self-protective behavior patterns, right? To either not allow us to be wrong because being wrong was too painful in the family unit. Or needing it's usually about the level of vulnerability that they're comfortable having in uh, social interactions in interpersonal relationships so
0: Hmm.
2: the shadow parts of us will develop either um, through nurture like we mimic our parents or our community how we were raised and what we saw. And we'll start to adopt those as part of our personality. But the the work in unraveling, you know, the quote unquote shadow is really helping people usually, you know, when they're in a hypnosis state, a very safe state with somebody that they've developed um, a lot of safety with, whether that's a somatic therapist or a psychotherapist, a hypnotherapist, Um, even with themselves, you know, the the dynamic neural retraining system, um, DNRS, Um, is a wonderful program that I would highly recommend any ND who feels trapped for time to refer or the Gupta program. Both of them are great at um, giving your patient the tools that they need to self-regulate on their own outside of your sessions. But usually it's when they're in a, the amygdalas calm down, they've got their prefrontal cortex online so executive function memory you know um social engagement their vagus nerve is probably activated um they're you know just in a more safe kind of space to receive and when you can offer them the opportunity to explore who they really are outside of the trauma response so the need to be right disarming that need to be right getting them into a vulnerable place and helping them to actually Sess out what it feels like for them with that conflict, right? And what is actually true for you when you take all of the cloak and mirrors and the smoke and mirrors or whatever that you take all of that defense away. What are you left with? And they start to build a relationship with their true essence, with their true emotion outside of the defensiveness. And with help, they can start to bring that into relationships in future, you know, when there's future conflict or triggers and they can say, oh yeah, I remember. I remember that conversation. It's been downloaded into the prefrontal cortex. It's in the nervous system. And they can start to choose alternate ways of either their self, like sh- how they self-limit in their beliefs about themselves or the world. Um, it can shift their level of safety with other people and help them to realize I do have agency. I can implement boundaries. I am not so unsafe to where I need to react with a sharp tongue or hurtful words or shutting down, ignoring, abusing, whatever the case might be, all these things that get put in the funnel of, of shadow work. Um, but it really is the reparenting. It's the reparenting piece, whether it's with a really great therapist or reading lots of great books, or you know, for people who don't have the funds, maybe you're following the education um of a few really skilled people on YouTube, uh, renting books from the library. You know, Dr. Stephen Porges is amazing. Um, there's a lot of really great leaders out there that are have so much research and clinical practice with this and they're teaching people the common symptoms of, you know, shadow symptoms and how to reverse it from a place of authenticity and safety.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm what what is this um reparenting uh, that that yeah. sounds like something worth unpacking a little bit if if you if you can
2: yeah yeah so you know there's this this term or this thought of good enough parenting right if you're lucky you had a good enough parent and you'll probably have a pretty resilient strong immune system pretty good gi health pretty good brain health um, you'll probably have a good job and be able to balance your, your finance as well. And, you know, all of those things, but for those who didn't experience good enough parenting or better, they're probably suffering in all of the above mentioned areas and more. So the role of healing trauma, um, functionally healing trauma really does come in assessing what are the triggers that lead people to either let's use money, for example, To either overspend or to under, like to become incredibly um, protective of their money, right? Like there's a spectrum of the intensity that we might present with. And when you find the actual trigger, you can start to look at where was the parenting actually lacking in the conversation of that trigger. Mm -hmm. So let's say it's, oh, I went to school. Oh God, I don't know if this is gonna be a good example. Okay, here's a good example. I, I was doing a presentation, I'm, I'm back at university right now. I was doing a presentation with um, a student colleague of mine and he was a young male, probably really nervous and he was over talking and didn't allow me to speak. And I was as patient as I could be until I hit my, my wall. And instead of being, you know, getting into conflict, I just left the presentation and I went and sat down. And to me, that spoke volumes, too. I was like, you know, like, dude, you're being rude and not creating space for me. And I had to unpack it in the sense that when I look at my family experiences, the role that a male had controlling over a female, not allowing her to speak, Not showing her respect, you know, all of these things I needed to sit with and actually reparent myself when I got home to break down what was actually happening and to remind myself you have the capacity, you have agency to have a conversation with that person afterward, right? To speak to the prof afterward, to XYZ, right? But whatever I didn't get in my family unit, when those conflicts were happening between the man and woman, father, mother, whatever, I am going to act like a child. I am going to resource myself. However I can, if walking away wasn't an option, maybe I would go and have some alcohol afterwards. I'm not, I'm not a drinker, but you know, maybe I'd go use booze or drugs or sex or something to numb because I don't actually have the resources to work through that trigger. So the reparenting process is going, what were you feeling in that moment? What was the narrative or the process that was lacking from a healthy adult brain? And how do I reinstate that? Or how do I groove that? And it's it's like skiing down a hill, right? The fresh, fresh snow, it's pretty tough the first time you ski. But the more you do it, the easier the pattern gets and the easier the ski is. And it's the same with behavior. It's like we have to catch it. We have to create a new neural pathway and we have to nurture that neural pathway from a place of calm, adult, rational, a rational place. Otherwise, we really are behaving just from the fire alarm system in the brain, Mm. which the issue with these patients that aren't resolving when that's happening day in and day out with work issues and traffic and kids and money and all of these things, their visceral organ uh, function actually um, suffers. They're not getting the blood nutrient oxygen flow to those visceral organs because they're stuck in fight or flight, right? Their mm-hmm. blood sugar is dysregulated. Um, all of these host of health issues start to happen. So I feel like you know it's such a beautiful comprehensive approach. To yes, we need the nutraceuticals. We do. We need the medical diet sometimes. We do. We really do. But how do we? I don't even want to say convince them, but how do we get them to have a snapshot, a picture of understanding what's happening with their nervous system, bypass shame, and actually get curious about it and go, Mm. oh man, that sounds really cool. How do I learn more about that? And that's an, I think it's an art form. I like
1: that you said the bypass shame, because I think a lot of people, there's a lot of, there's still a lot of stigma around what people's ideas, interpretations of mental health is. And It doesn't mean you have to have a psychiatric diagnosis to start to work with someone and unpack your things. We're human and we all carry a lot of baggage that maybe we didn't intend to. We've accumulated from various experiences and we don't always realize how it, like like where you're talking about, we don't always realize how it's actually driving our actions, our emotions, our thoughts, our reactions. And I think everybody would greatly benefit from beginning to learn how to repair themselves yeah. <laughs> and identify those moments. Right. I mean, it, 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 yes, like, yes, the nutraceuticals, yes, the diet, like people eat garbage diets, but then you also have to wonder is like what, when you have the option to eat in a way that honors your body and you, and you know this, but you still choose McDonald's on a daily basis or Uber eats every day. What is the driving force behind that? Cause that's really, yeah. that's
2: really it. Yeah. Yeah it really is. There's so much juiciness there mm. that often doesn't get unpacked because yes. I think this research is still pretty new. It, I think it will become fairly common. I hope so. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm very political and I won't bring all my politics to the table here today, but I do think it's by design. And I think, you know, Part of the resistance of what's happened with, um, you know, what's happened in Canada and North America with this settler capitalistic, you know, super um, capitalistic driven society that we live in, it doesn't allow for family units to take the time to slow down and really mm. teach and parent while they're in their window of tolerance. Everybody is so freaking stressed and max yeah. out that we're not given the amount of time needed. We would have communities. We would have not just our parents, we'd have sisters, brothers, aunts, uncles, you know, people that weren't our family, but treated us like their children. And they would teach us their wisdom. They would teach us the ways of human emotion and interpersonal relationships. And now we're being raised by iPads and TVs. And I'm not shitting on parents. I can I'm not a parent, but I can imagine how hard it is. We don't live in a society that really fosters and nurtures this this way of being.
1: I agree
0: yeah, it's hard that's a hard yeah. one to uh something that that's very hard to tackle um but yeah. what i'd what I'd like to tackle something you guys sort of brought up was the sort of link between so we talked a lot about like uh there's a lot of psychological realm trauma as an experience in the mental sort of uh, realm less. So have we talked about the body and and perhaps the links between these psychological states, brain <clears throat> experiences of the brain, less so about the brain itself and the body itself and the viscera themselves. How, how are you linking some of these psychological experiences to sort of like more dense, crude realities, like bodies, nutrition, and brains?
2: Yeah. Yeah, so when we think about the afferent and efferent signaling coming from the brain and through the enteric nervous system, that says it all, right? So we have this fire alarm that goes off in the amygdala and it signals through the vagus nerve or mostly the vagus nerve, the splenic nerve as well. But we get this messaging throughout our viscera that something is wrong and that is going to communicate to our fascia right? So all those neurochemicals are going to accumulate in fascial tissue if we're not discharging it properly and animals discharge it properly. Animals, we see it. This is a common um, kind of description of how animals effectively clear trauma from the body. But after a a possible attack or almost being killed, they finally get to safe ground and they shake and you'll see them. Zebras do it and any animal, they all do it. They shake it up. We don't we hold it in, we hold it in and it sits in our fascia and in our cells and it accumulates. So it'll either accumulate adhesions or pain, inflammation. It'll kind of foster, cause the environment as we know is everything, right? Um, intracellular, extracellular space is, um, Challenged, it's challenged because it's supposed to have a certain type of neurochemistry around it. And it's just bathed with these pro-inflammatory neurochemicals all the time. Um, So then what ends up happening is the more we engage with these patterns without actually somatically clearing it from the body, whether that's with an osteopath or a cranial sacral therapist or a somatic therapist or us doing our own body work, there are many different ways to do it. We don't always need a practitioner. We can, we're animals, we can do it ourselves as well. We just have to learn how and when are the signs and symptoms of having neuro pro-inflammatory neurochemicals accumulate. And what is our toolbox? What do I like to do? So for me, it's self-myofascial release. It's um, definitely with my somatic therapist. I do a lot of lymph drainage and lymph support to help to move this stuff through because when the trauma depending you know, we haven't gotten into the polyvagal theory yet, but if you're in a freeze state, right, which is a very common trauma response, a lot of our functions in the body also freeze, including Mm -hmm. lymph drainage. So when we can start to go, oh, I present a lot in a freeze fawn response, let's say, um, or somebody else, you know, more of, um, like a hypo dorsal vagal response, somewhere depression, apathy, they're not moving a lot. And they go, ah, okay, without the shame and judgment, I'm in another dorsal dorsal vagal response or freeze response. I am going to activate or clear some of these neurochemicals consciously because I know it's good for my health. And they develop a toolbox. You know, I've tried many different things. I've got maybe 10 of my favorite go-tos. And I really encourage people to find start to get curious, you know, like read blogs, consult your practitioners, read books, go on YouTube and start to learn how are some of the ways that I can clear these neurochemicals from my fascial networks and my, my body and see what you like, see what you're drawn to and start to engage with it as much as you can. Whenever it's happening, move it out.
0: And should it feel, should all these things feel good? Cause that's one, one of the things I find with, if I do uh, the visceral manipulation, osteopathic mobs, well, if I do them well, that's a big if. Uh, and with like some degree of skill and specificity, they, they are actually enjoyable and feel good. Is, mm-hmm. What about, the, cause I don't know much about these other body-based therapies that, you, that you're speaking of. Are they generally like a comfortable thing? There's something that like feels soothing and good, or are they kind of no pain, no gain thing? Mm, Yeah. So it depends
2: on the medium. Yeah. Very good question. And it depends on the amount of neurochemicals that have accumulated. So when I'm doing um, fascial releasing with people, whether I'm teaching them how to do it on their own, using balls and bands and rollers, or if I've got them on the table myself and I'm doing it with the straps, um, the, the fascial stretching, sometimes the first, second, third, up to maybe 10 times can be quite uncomfortable and painful. There's a lot being released um, but it does give way, it starts to create bandwidth and the pain decreases. Um, with my somatic therapist, for example, by the time we're done the session, I feel incredible. Because mm-hmm. in the moment we go through, you know, there there might be five, 10 minutes, depending on what we're going through, um, what we're addressing, where, yeah, I could be sweating, I could be nauseous, I could be um, shaking not good shaking, like trembling with fear. Mm -hmm. Um, But once we ride the wave, and I think a lot of people avoid somatic therapy, because they don't want to feel those things, it reminds them of the original abandonment, or the original pain and trauma. And they're like, I don't want to go back to that. And I'm like, I know, but it's never as bad as it was originally, A. Mm -hmm. And B, we survive the storm. And that builds self confidence and resiliency. It builds that that awareness that I'm not as fragile as I might subconsciously think I am. I can weather these storms and come out stronger. Um, But generally it should feel pretty good. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, I remember, I think I uh, I remember talking to you about this, where sometimes there's a resistance for people to go, to explore this further because they don't want to go through the, the pain. They don't want to feel exhausted after because it's, it's deeper work. And then you have to be able to recover after. And then they're like, I have a bunch of kids I got to take care of and this and this. So it's hard for some of these people to create space for this. Um, it feels yeah. scary to do so. But I remember talking to you about how using somatic therapy actually allowed you to feel safe to begin to unpack things so yeah. that way, it didn't feel so charged. It didn't feel so traumatic. It didn't feel so uh, difficult to begin to to unpack the problems. With that, is that correct? Is that part of why somatic therapy is is how it's designed or its purpose? Yeah,
2: yeah. So when you think about, I love to give this as a um, as an analogy. So if you think about the amount of time it takes to raise an infant from birth to let's say six years old, where they're pretty independent and they've got a good grasp on, okay, this is what days look like. This is what school looks like. This is what family looks like. And I kind of get the world, right? Six years of parenting every day, you're present to that child's needs. Hopefully we have to do the same thing in order for us to develop safety in the body when safety wasn't available to us in our family units. So it took me a year to establish ground, like just ground basis amount of safety within my body to actually start to look at some of the bigger T traumas that happened to me. I don't think any responsible somatic trauma therapist would never dive in
1: Mm.
2: with somebody until they know that person can self-resource the the little waves. If they're self-resourcing in the little waves, then I know it's responsible to go in and we can start to look at the tougher stuff right? Um, but it does, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of time. And depending on the compound, the amount of traumas, the compounding traumas, it it could take years to develop that level of safety. And that's okay.
0: Mm-hmm. You know,
2: we have to get out of that mindset of now, 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 now. It's like, sure, you can try and approach it from that, but you'll probably get smacked down again. Like you have to really surrender to the, to the unknown. Mm-hmm. Feel like that's you know? a big theme in life
1: is learning how to surrender. Yeah. Everyone wants to try to hyper control everything around them. I'm guilty of this. Um, yeah. And learning to surrender is, ooh, it's a vulnerable act and it's, yeah. it's tough. Even in a safe environment, it's hard to like sometimes surrender. Right. So uh yeah, you said something about polyvagal something, something mm. you're like, we haven't even unpacked that. Do, do you want to touch on that?
0: Yeah, <laughs> you
1: mentioned yeah, something, and I wrote down theory. Polyvagal, and I can't remember the rest of it.
2: <laughs> if we only take one thing away from today, honestly, the Polyvagal Theory, I think your your viewers, the people that are tuning in, can get so much from understanding this theory. Cool. Um, it's very visual. They have a lot of visuals to help people to understand how the nervous system is responding and presenting in different ways. Um, Dr. Stephen Porges is the physician who, he started studying babies and he wanted to understand when babies are dying because they're not getting touched, why is that? Like what is happening in the nervous system? And it's his, his research is absolutely fascinating. Uh, there's some great videos on YouTube, tons of free content where he explains things. He's got a really great book as well, or several, but um, basically what he developed is this understanding of de- depending on the level of safety that the mother provided both in ut- utero and also you know, raising the child, the level of connection and safety that the child has with the mother and the family unit will determine how their nervous system behaves under stress. So ideally, if you look at the polyvagal theory as this box, this rectangle, And everything inside the rectangle is your window of tolerance. That's where you're thinking clearly, your memory is, um, you're able to access your memory well, you're able to engage in social engagement quite well, eye contact, laughing, joyous activities, but also your digestion is working well, you're detoxing and repairing properly. Your window of tolerance is the sweet zone. And when something happens, right, and this isn't only interpersonal relationships and external trauma, it can also be if somebody gets sick. So because of the afferent and efferent signaling going through the enteric nervous system to the brain, if somebody has, let's say they went to a different country, they were traveling and they picked up a bug and the bug's quite aggressive, that can send afferent signaling or afferent signaling back to the brain saying, we are under threat and it will pull somebody out of their window of tolerance. Same thing with toxicity, heavy metal toxicity, glyphosate, like it's not just about relationships, the body knows when it's under attack, and when it's under threat. So when that threat becomes registered by the brain, you will either go into a mobilized state. So you're out of the top part of the rectangle, and you're in your fight or flight state. Okay, or you'll go into a hypo response, into a dorsal vagal response. And that's where the overwhelm of the problem is so big that people collapse. And it is a life-saving type response. Their heart rate slows down, their blood pr- blood pressure goes down, um, their ability to detox and repair goes down their problem-solving capacity goes down. So people who get stuck in these cycles of depression and not seeing a way out, it's because their prefrontal cortex is not online. They're not in their window of tolerance. So there are actual exercises that you can do with people if they're working with a polyvagal trained practitioner to help them to say, okay, when you're in a mobilized state, You're going to try these practices to get back into your window of tolerance. Or if you're in a depressed hypo kind of dorsal response, you can do these things to kind of hack the nervous system. You're trying to encourage it to get back into its window of tolerance, but also building bandwidth or reducing allostatic load. So allostatic load being the amount of stress that the nervous system is carrying and not able to, or not doesn't know how to clear it so how do we clear it and how do we build resiliency and bandwidth while teaching them to sk- the skills to recognize i'm out of my window of tolerance and i need to get back in by using these practices mm. um while detoxing if it is a, a medical issue that's contributing to this and it's not just interpersonal trauma related the detox and repair part is so key in helping them to build that nervous system resiliency
1: mm.
0: When I want to ask you, um, I just want to tell you because uh, this is super interesting. I'm just gonna come at you with sort of what Jean-Pierre Barral talks about. Just I'm gonna paraphrase some of his um his ob- observations, let's say, of of patients. And it's not maybe specifically trauma, but oftentimes I'd say trauma or stress at least. Um he's and he's so ground that part of the reason I love it is he's so grounded in anatomy. He knows. It's the the granularity of his understanding of anatomy is second to none, I, I would imagine. And and so that's that's got that means when he says these other things that are not grounded in anatomy, I listen. <laughs> and and he says, um, oftentimes when there's like a big stress or maybe a trauma, uh, the brain can't take it. It it actually like it's sort of, and this is where he makes a little sleight of hand or whatever. He's like, I don't know what happens, but it downloads it into the body and oftentimes organs. So, yeah. I don't know how that aligns with like this more you you have a w- way deeper understanding of this stuff obviously than than what I do, but it does does that align at all and and do you see patterns between like types of trauma and organs or areas affected?
2: Yeah, so the types of traumas and how they present and how they affect different organs, I don't understand the pathophysiology behind that yet um or the pathways behind that yet like i would love to learn and i'm sure i'll, I'll come across it at some point and in, in digging into all this stuff but what i understand of it is you know the vagus nerve being the longest running nerve in the body it travels um, being named after vagabond, right? It's, it's, it's a curious little nerve and it's everywhere mm. and it's connecting to all your organs. So depending on the level of, um, strength that the vagus nerve has, right. When something happens to, in the brain, you know, another way of looking at trauma is something that happened. It was too much, too fast, too soon, right? If we don't want to identify as somebody who's experienced trauma and fair, it kind of is a blanket term nowadays. Maybe somebody just experienced stress that was too much, too fast and too soon. They couldn't resource in that moment.
1: Hmm.
2: The brain is going to communicate through the nerves that travel through our body, the enteric nervous system. And it's going to communicate whether we need to go into fight or flight or shut down. So that is the literal communication that the organs are getting. Right. Right. So depending on the level of threat and how our body chooses to respond to that threat, it is going to have a cascade effect on our organs. So for people who are, you know, chronically constipated, right? They have poor motility. The gut is stagnant. Um, The enteric nervous system isn't communicating with the gut effectively. It's not stimulating peristalsis. It's not stimulating um, uh, pancreatic enzyme releases because it, it, It's funneling that energy to the fight or flight system Hmm. saying we don't have the luxury of Mm -hmm. producing pancreatic enzymes. We don't have the luxury of of engaging with peristalsis because we have to save your life. So this is 90% of who we are, 90% and it's subconscious. People don't have the awareness. It's not offered to us. It takes too much brain power. Um, that's why they say we only, we only use 10% of our brain. I'm like, no, we're using a hundred percent of our brain. It's that it is subconsciously conducting our bodies primarily. So I think when, when I'm hearing something like that, when I'm like, okay, somebody has experienced some type of stress, compounding stressors, and they're dealing with some type of resistant treatment, resistant presentation. It's not the pills, the protocol, the practitioner. It's not, There's. No, they're not wrong. It's, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, maybe they are, right? But generally it's that this information that's being passed down subconsciously, this well-grooved pattern is communicating to all of those efferent nerves, those enteric nerves and um, changing the way our organs behave, the blood flow, nutrient flow, oxygen flow. It just starves them
1: do you see more of a pattern with certain traumas? Cause in Chinese medicine, it's like the stomach can be a lot of the worry. The liver is more right. poorly expressed anger. Your gallbladder is more decision-making and courage. Your large intestine is more letting go. So I w- I'm curious if you've seen, do you see, have you seen a little bit of like that more type of a connection with certain organ systems, not working optimally based on how the trauma has been interpreted or compartmentalized in their system have you ever noticed any of those patterns
2: i would just be regurgitating what i've heard yeah. through chinese medicine i don't okay. understand why yeah but yes i mean definitely the the concept of somebody not being able to let go and dealing with constipation or small intestine issues mm-hmm. or large intestine issues um you know anger being related to the liver i'm like why why Mm -hmm. though tell me why (laughs) what are the actual neurochemicals that are are deciding to feed that pathway to that organ why I don't know that Mm -hmm. yet but definitely I've seen those patterns yeah it's
1: interesting and I always sometimes you know I read the Joe Dispenza's and I started like doing things like looking into the quantum psychology and how Mm -hmm. he's you know your thoughts and emotions are basically just energy and electricity and vibrations and um, mm. another colleague of mine was saying that our fascia basically abides by the laws of quantum physics. So that's where emotions right. and feelings and stress and trauma can get stuck in the fascia because of that. Um, and maybe it's not a matter of like the biochemistry, maybe there's just a certain vibration to things. Maybe it's more about the frequency and we tend to forget about that, right? right. Where it's like the spark in the space between molecules has a lot more magic than we've often given, given it credit for. So, um, mm. I always, I always think about those types of things. And I've also heard like something that happens extremely traumatic can be passed down transgenerationally because it's too much for one person to physically unpack. Like people who were part of war-torn countries, it gets passed down because each generation is meant to kind of like unpack that trauma because it's too much for one person. It would be too difficult. So like hearing things like that is always, it's always interesting to like the body's kind of cool how it's just like, no, this is too much. We're going to just kind of like seed that
2: down the way. <laughs> yeah. the in, Okay. So the intergenerational trauma piece was really fascinating. It is very fascinating to me. Um, and something clicked with me this year with working with my psychotherapist who does the somatic therapy with me. Um, so can I get a little deeper? Yeah. Okay. Please. So my birth mother was, um, severely abused physically and sexually abused and trafficked as, um, Ooh. a young woman. Yes. By her own family. So she, um, developed a she got cervical cancer and needed a hysterectomy. Mm-hmm. Um, but she had a lot of issues with her urogenital system, obviously. Right. And rightfully so. So here comes Cassandra, you know, mom leaves when when I'm 12 and I'm with my dad and this very cold British stepmom, you know, raising me through my teen years. And I start having sex and I start, you know, getting into boys and all this and I start developing these same urogenital um symptoms, chronic UTIs, chronic everything, uh yeast infections, BV, it was chronic, chronic, chronic and I was young. I was like, "What is happening and this went on for decades until recently and when I was talking to my psychotherapist about this and I said I'm plagued because of intergenerational trauma I knew enough to know that what had happened to my mom had been passed down to me and now here I am presenting with all of these trauma symptoms right and she said it's only when your environment matches the threat Hmm. epigenetics are such where the trauma presentations will only present when you're in the same environment that the trauma happened to your elders, to your, you know, the people who are passing it down to you. And it really is, I want to say, yes, it can be to titrate the pain down intergenerationally, but from what I've understood and what what I've understood in my research is that it's actually built in life-saving mechanisms it's mm. built to help us to go ah there's a problem here there's a problem here whether it's dust and mold that's the environmental mm. trigger whether it's unsafe relationships with you know unhealthy sexual partners that aren't treating you with love and kindness and you know the trauma compounds it just keeps repeating itself when you don't know how to ground yourself and create boundaries and have all of these healthy you know mechanisms Genetics are such where they can recognize you are again in a similar situation where you are unsafe, you're not being honored, protected, um, you know, you're in a sexual, you know, whatever the case might be. And it starts to shift your methylation. It mm-hmm. starts to shift the way that you respond to that environment, hmm. whether it's your sexual partner's bacteria and their microbiome or their neurochemicals, their pheromones, whatever it is. So my work this year has been to be sexually sober, which I have been, it's been the most profound year of my life because I'm now witnessing what is happening to my, what I thought was an incurable issue when I remove myself from the environment. Mm. And now my job is to reparent myself, slow down, choose appropriately not just with men and sexual partners, but also my environment. I'm severely intolerant to mold, Mm. right? So to say, okay, I'm going to act as the parent, the grounded parent, I am going to slow down, create the boundaries, ask the questions, implement protection when needed. I wear my mold mask when I'm at UFT because it's gross in old buildings. Like we have to learn how to recognize when the environmental triggers are affecting our methylation and our immune responses. And what are the tools that we need to implement to downregulate, to calm things down and allow the nervous system and the immune system to know we're actually okay. I'm in the driver's seat. And I'm going to remove us from threat.
1: That's right? an interesting perspective at that.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Environment's everything.
1: Yeah, and, but learned behavior too, and 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 you know, self worth and all that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it it all compounds, and then the environment adds another layer of alarm bells, right? Like, it's just there's so many things, there's so much. To being there's human. so much. There's so much to being human. Like it's actually wild. And then yeah. Dave and I talk about this or like as naturopaths, like you have, there's so much you have to try to like fit together. And then yeah. it's sometimes it's still, it's still not enough because the body and being human is so complex, but and so beautiful and brilliant, but it's just like, yeah. oh man.
0: And you'll never know <laughs> you it keep, all. That's the, that's the part you have to, it's yeah. it's funny. We have to like courageously keep trying to figure stuff out, knowing that we'll never yeah, figure yeah. it all out perfectly, but we keep, you know, keep trying. Yeah. It's hard work, right?
2: Yeah. I feel like you guys have a really tough job because you're not working with people mm-hmm. that are in their ideal state in the world. Mm-hmm. We're dealing with all of these untested chemicals and this incredible um demand on our nervous system to perform 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 and you're trying to work with the laws of you know physics like you understand the way the body works and humans work but it's like they're not in their ideal state and it's an uphill battle hmm. having them to you know my girlfriend always says it's like redlining in a car you got to gear down you're in fifth gear going you're at five thousand six thousand rpms how do we get you to gear down you know yeah mm. yeah what
1: um I just want to touch on something before we kind of wrap things up a bit but mm-hmm. um you mentioned this a few times and I just want to understand a little bit more because I've I've I don't think I I think I've heard the term somatic therapist but I think um, you brought up a few things where you really do things physically. So you brought up like shaking or things like, what are some examples mm-hmm. of like what that would entail to, to release things on a physical level?
2: Mm-hmm. Can you,
1: what, cause okay. So fascial stretching was one and you offer that service, you know, go, go team Cassandra. Um, <laughs> <but> some, <laughs> and then also like Dave does like the visceral stuff. I send people to osteopaths. Mm-hmm. There's also this cool, Resource called Human Garage, where they teach people how to do their own fascial stretching um, with like mm. specific types of twists and breath work to help release mm. a little bit of the stress that might be held in the fascia. There are resources, but somatic therapy is something, um, you know, very more specific, I guess. Can you give us a couple of examples of what that could look like?
2: Yeah. So the way that my therapist um does it with me is she'll say, once we drop in, um, So just high level point, we do a couple deep breaths, we drop into the body um, and I'll answer more of that in a second, (laughs) Uh, just what's in the chat, but yeah. Um, And, uh, and once we recognize there's, you know, we always start with the head, face or neck. So if there's jaw tension or jaw pain, let's say, or my throat feels inflamed and kind of tight and swollen a little bit you know when you get upset and you're like holding a lot of energy in the throat and she'll say okay i want you to just observe observe it and you're just going to watch it and see how it shifts and as you start to just observe she's like what does it feel like you want to stay out of story there's no story it's not oh because this happened it's it's tingly it's hot it's void it's heavy mm-hmm. and you start to notice you know the sensation And then it might dissipate, it might move, it might shift into the chest or the back or whatever. You're literally following your body's pattern. And once it stops and you're at a point where it's just kind of hanging out there, she'll say, okay, do you need breath, touch or movement? And she'll leave it up to me to intuitively decide, oh, I need to up and just breathe and stretch it out or open my chin and allow this area to open up and try and send breath to the area right? So breath, touch, or movement always, sometimes she'll have me shake, but I'm incredibly resistant to shaking. And that Mm. really is part of the trauma. And you don't like something that kind of pisses me off. And I know people are doing it in with the best intentions and nobody's trying to hurt anybody, but there are some somatic coaches that will just jump right into shaking with somebody, for example. And that depending on the type of trauma that somebody has experienced, that can really put them into, um, reactivate the trauma. It's quite unsafe. Mm. You want to make sure that they're ready. And when she has me shake, I'm, she says micro, like you're trying to just flick water off the ends of your fingertips. Micro. You're not doing this huge because it, it, the chemicals are going to get released when we shake. We know that from our chat earlier, right? And when you dump all of these stress-based neurochemicals into the bloodstream, it's overwhelming for the nervous system. So you want to choose the appropriate type of either breath, touch, or movement. Like Wim Hof breathing is incredible. Mm. I absolutely love it, Mm. but it's like hyperventilating and it could send somebody into a trauma state if they're not the right candidate for it. Right. Um, so yeah, it's, it, it, it's something that I would definitely encourage people to spend a lot of time learning how to develop safety first mm-hmm. before starting to do something even as simple as shaking on your own.
1: Okay, cool. Good to know. Thank you.
0: Um, yeah.
1: Cassandra tell, um, I have a- like a three two-part question and then a follow-up question yeah bring it (laughs) how can people get a hold of you is question number one yeah can you tell our audience how they can get a hold of you so that they can actually come to see you for some of your offerings um as well as just follow you because you you express a lot of stuff you share a lot in your social media platform and I think it's really great so um tell the audience how they can connect with you
2: uh, yeah, so I'm most active on Instagram. So be well with Cassandra Hope is my handle. I do have a website, be well with hope, but it's just kind of you know websites are like whatever nowadays. <laughs> I don't do much on it. <laughs> um, it. But you can also find me. I work out of Longev Clinic in Corktown, Toronto, on King East, um, and that's where I I practice all of this: fascial stretch, Perfect. nutrition coaching, um, all of it.
1: Perfect. And what would you say is your ideal type of person to work with or, um, mm. or what do you seem to attract a lot of?
2: Yeah. So I tend to work a lot with women and I don't think it's because, you know, I would definitely work with men. I just, I don't know if they necessarily maybe ask for as much help, um, but I would work with any sex, uh, trans, trans, non-binary male, female. Um, I just love working with humans and I work with um, humans. <laughs> I work with humans. <laughs> Although working with animals is really appealing also, but Oh, that'd be cool <laughs> later, you know? Um, but I work with people who really, they just have a fight in them. They've been through a lot. They know that there's more available to them. They know that there's more peace and healing available to them and they just haven't cracked the code yet. Uh, I work with people who are open-minded. So those who are quite convinced that healing is hard, uh, that it's not available to them, or that um, I have to convince them, I we, we won't work well together. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not the type of person that's gonna convince you that you're worthy or capable of healing.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but I do really like working with people who are like, I'm here to learn, I have an open mind, I know this is gonna be tough, possibly. Um, but I'm here for it. I want to do it. And and we geek out together, you know? Neat.
1: So what's next for you? You kind of gave a few hints about um doing some stuff at UAT. So what's next on the trajectory for
2: you, my love? Yeah, thank you. Um so with all of this coaching, I realized it was the this the most to, to be the how do I say this to have the most integrity as a practitioner. And the trajectory that I was on, I realized it's really important for me to get my degree. Um, so I've come back to university. I'm at UFT right now, uh, entering one years, uh, year one in my science program with the goal of becoming a neuroscientist. And I will, after having my neuroscience degree, I'll um, focus on psychology. So doing my, I, the goal is probably to end up doing. Um, uh, I was going to say psychotherapy. Um, but that might change. I'm so into research. I, I might get into policy. I, um, I have a really big issue with our systems in place. Uh Um, so I'm really, I know neuroscience and, and the sciences is what I'm going to focus on, but how I'm going to kind of bring that to the world after I'm not exactly sure yet.
1: I'm excited for what you bring into the world. You have a lot thank of passion you. and drive and a lot of integrity. So I'm excited
2: to see what's thank in your you. future. I'm excited too. We'll be eating grilled cheese and talking with Renato while we unpack it all. <laughs>
1: yeah, we'll have some pretty awesome conversations. Unfortunately, we'll be broadcast on the podcast. So you guys are just gonna no. have to just, you're gonna have to just follow Cassandra to to get all the goods from her, uh, from her Instagram for yourselves. <laughs>
2: thank you.
0: Yes, thank you.